when you get to the third period uh, and as the temperature rises your eyes get heavier so my challenge is before me those of you who are skilled in mathematics will look at the fifth chapter and see that we got down to about the uh, 22nd verse and you will flip over and you'll look at the sixth chapter and the seventh and you'll say if this guy doesn't get going he's not going to cover very much well you're probably right but what we do cover we hope will create within you an interest to explore further if we don't reach the end of the seventh chapter now remember we said the other day that we have to view this discourse of Jesus as he sat and taught with the Jewish background and appreciate the things he said in condition with the times that he lived in and then the trick is to relate those situations to 1988 the book of Matthew as you all know is the book that relates to Jesus as King we said yesterday that he gave a policy speech in the Sermon on the Mount the policy speech that this King uttered has not changed in the 1900 years that have come since that day the principles that he taught as he sat by the Sea of Galilee have not deviated the king hasn't changed the king was speaking the word of God who of him it is said there is no variableness nor shadow of turning so the principles that are outlined in this policy speech of the king are without deviation they haven't changed so as we view them today they can be just as applicable to the lives of those to our lives as to the lives of those that heard him physically utter the words we're going to back up just perhaps a little in review we said that the Beatitudes gave the overall tone and then Jesus begins to speak directly to those who are to be his representatives as being salt and light he deals with the Jewish people in his audience and says now the, the law that God gave Moses is important the law and by inference the law that I'm giving you is equally important to the law of Moses because it is God given and it is the source of both our God and he said that those that would disrespect God's law that had been given to Moses could be treated disrespectfully if I may put it that way 
by the Creator. And it would only be right and proper that that was the kind of reception one would get. And then he said to those that listened to him, and in that audience were scattered Pharisees, he said, now look, these guys stood out like a sore thumb. And he said, if you don't exceed in your ability to serve God right and properly, and that your rightness exceed that of these guys you see here with the curly whiskers and the unkept beards and so on, and the broad phylacteries, he said, if yours doesn't exceed theirs, you're never going to make it into the kingdom of God. And if you're concerned with getting into the kingdom of God, then you better make an effort to be better than these. They saw the evidence of what he spoke about before their eyes. We really don't have that same ability or sight comparison that they had at that day as they sat there by that tranquil sea. And doesn't it seem rather strange that Jesus, when he begins to teach of his policy, and he begins to address those who are to represent him, the first thing that he deals with in way of admonishing them to be better than these guys that they could see, he deals with the question of anger toward one's brother. I wonder why. You know, if you were the king and giving a policy speech that had to do with the deportment of your followers, what do you think you would tell them to do as how they ought to behave? Do you think you would have thought of using the situation of anger toward one's brother as the first thing really to deal with after having generalized as he has up to this point? He zeroed in on anger against one's brother. We said yesterday that in that area, the King James allows you an excuse by saying that there, if there was a cause, it's okay. The other translators or translations don't have that in there, and that makes you suspect that it was tendered in there as a cover-up for anger. We said yesterday that we ought not to indulge ourselves in anger because it is a mark or evidence of the impulses of the flesh, the attitude that we have. Have you ever thought and thought what really causes one to be angry and particularly against one's brother? Oh sure, they may say something that upsets you. They may not behave just the way you would hope they would. They might uh, not do the things that you would hope they would. But most often when we get angry with our brother, it's because he's pricked our balloon. Think about it. It's not just what he did. It's what we think he did to us.
And Jesus saw that the first thing to deal with, if he was going to get his followers on the right course, was to get them to realize that anger has no place in his kingdom or in the policy that he's hoping to establish for his followers. We said yesterday that anger is emotion out of control. And that's it. And when we direct our venom and our uh, vengeance, which is the Lord's, at someone else, we're indulging self. Our attitude of our self-worth is completely wrong. If we think we're so great and that someone else has said something to us that has caused us to be emotionally out of control, be sure that our attitude is wrong. If we esteem our brothers better than ourselves to be, how could they make us mad or angry? If we have the proper perspective of our own worth and the worth of them before God, if we esteem them better than ourselves, how can we be angry with them? Something to think about. And the precedence that Jesus gave it in dealing with it as first in his pausy outline, I think is worthy of note. As we go on, we find that Jesus carries on, and we won't backtrack anymore on that. He talks about the fact that if one came to the temple with a gift to the Lord, and there he remembered that he, that his brother had ought against him, he was to leave his gift, go and make the situation right between he and his brother, and then, and only then, come and offer the gift. You know, when we think of offenses and anger and all that, how often, as somebody suggested here, I don't know if it was last night or this morning, that we're always ready and quick to say, well, it was the other guy's fault. You see, we use the teachings of Jesus elsewhere and say that uh, if a man is guilty of offense, that the offended party go to the one he's offended and say, look, I'm sorry. I, I, I was out of line. I don't know what I was thinking about. I apologize, and I wish this thing were made right. We, we were great on that one. We zero in on that one every time. The onus is on him to come to us. I offended him fine. Let him come to me and I'll, I'll settle things with him. But you see, Jesus in his policy speech says, Look, if you're aware that you offended your brother, the onus is on you to make it right. Don't wait for him. Sure, I covered it later in my teachings. You know, I'm paraphrasing here. I hope you'll allow me that liberty. Uh... You have a responsibility to set the matter right yourself. Don't wait for him. 
Sure, it's his responsibility to come to you. I'm not denying that. And he's not to go and tell everybody here wide and here wide. Everybody in the country of the offense. And you know, most offenses are imaginary. He's not supposed to tell it. If he has a problem with you, his God-given directive is to go to you and settle it. Your God-given directive is, if you're aware of an offense, straighten it up, fix it. Make sure that you're right with your brother before you try to give service to God. That's what's implied here. In doing these things, you obviously are doing God's bidding as outlined by his son. He goes on talking about if your adversary, and obviously an adversary could be your brother, but I don't think the context bears it out. The adversary, as envisaged from the Jewish background, was that if you had done something, and your adversary or your person to whom you were indebted for whatever reason was going to take you to the law. Apparently, according to one writer, that if you had someone that owed you something, you could go to their house after, I, get, I don't know how long the prescribed time was, but you could grab them by the ear and haul them out and take them down the street screaming in agony or whatever it is, and deliver him to the judge and say, okay, this guy, you know, he's a deadbeat, he's all the other things, he owes me money, and uh, I brought him here so the case can be heard, and you and your official position as a lawmaker and a law uh, dispenser, you pass judgment on this guy and make him pay. And if he doesn't pay, throw him into prison and make him stay there until he's paid. Now, of course, there are deeper meanings to these uh, parables or suggestions in this policy, but I'm only going to look on the surface one here for the moment. Jesus says, well, if your adversary has a case against you, better to settle it on the way when he's dragging you down the street. Make a compromise with him or whatever is necessary. Or is it a compromise? I suppose it depends where you come from. Make a compromise with them. That's what he's suggesting. Because obviously you're in the wrong. And how many times have we been in the wrong and tried to defend ourselves? You know, we, we make all kinds of excuses. Uh, that, you know, if the guy had given me more time, if he uh, had understood that my mother-in-law got sick and I had to go and buy her a new pair of shoes or whatever, we, we come up with a million excuses as to why the other guy was unreasonable in persecuting us for something that we really were indebted to. Now, if, if, if somebody comes to us and, and we're obligated to them, meet that obligation quickly, Jesus says, so that you will not receive a greater problem. Now, that's the surface interpretation. I'll leave it at that. You can take it and 
think about all the other things, implications that there might be toward life in, in this uh, adversary. I'm dealing with the surface application of this. There is a deeper one, but uh, it really isn't my purpose here today or this week to delve out everything in these things. I wish I could. I wish I had the capacity. You know, a lot, a lot of these things I can't even understand. I, I understand a few of them, and I'll share those with you, but it'll take you to dig out the more deep matters in the law that Jesus has established here. Now, he comes on to the matter of adultery. He says, in the old days, it says, he that was guilty of adultery uh, was to be stoned. And, of course, an adulterer was one who had committed the physical act. Jesus raising his policy to a higher level suggests that a person indulging in lustful contemplation is guilty of the act. And I think our brother Pete years ago in Canada put it in his proper perspective when he said, we all have evil thoughts, but if we give it a hospitable abode, then it becomes a reaction or an attitude or the guilt. We all have evil thoughts, and if we dis dispose of them quickly in our minds, put them out of our minds, the act isn't committed. But if we give it a hospitable abode and we figure out all the angles and what could be done to uh, initiate a situation where uh, the act could take place, we are indulging, again I use that word, in lustful thinking and attitudes. And therefore, though the physical act not occur, mentally, we have been guilty. You know, we can indulge in all kinds of uh, mental gymnastics to bring about fantasies. Did you ever think that in the law of Jesus, as dictated in his policy, that fantasizing is as great as the commitment of an act. You know, we said that Jesus' demands and commands were at a level so high that none of us will ever attain unto it. But through the grace and God and the compassion and the mercy and the understanding that he has of our frame, we will make it into the kingdom of God. But it demands mental discipline. You know, most of us don't like discipline. You tell somebody he has to do something, and his back goes up immediately. Uh, wives get to the point where they uh, manipulate their husbands, never by saying, do this, cut the lawn. They'll say some uh, thing like, don't you think the lawn's long? Uh, don't those, think those weeds are getting kind of big? Because they know that if they tell their husband to go out and cut the lawn, he's going to rebel. That's the nature of us, the human beast. And so the uh, attitude of having to discipline ourselves is something that we don't like and 
don't take too kindly. Now, if we're to discipline our thoughts, which in a sense dictate our actions, you know, that takes a bit of effort. If you've got a, a bad thought in your mind, you've got to work at it to get it out. It's a concerted effort. Just as to let it remain involves, I suppose, some mental energy, and you entertain these things. But to get it out seems to take more of an effort. But this is really what Jesus is talking about here. If you discipline your thoughts, and as David said, it is my, your law is my study all the day. He, he was moved by God's law, he thought about it, and he applied it to his life. And then things that he did. Sure, our speaker last night told us what a renegade he was. Uh, but when checked, the only reason that David could be called a man after God's own heart is because of the response that he gave when he realized that he was wrong. Now, David, uh, in the realization that if our, if our minds are filled with God's law, and I don't say that you've got to be repeating the Beatitudes and the, the laws all the time in your mind, but if you're thinking of the general application, that's God's law in your mind, and you're thinking on it, and you're applying it to your day-to-day -day activities. And as a result of these, you can discipline your thinking. God's law is the tool by which we discipline our thinking. And God's law is the means by which we might attain unto the greatness of the reward that he has held out for us. Jesus said, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And if your hand offends you, cut it off. Now we know again, Gerald, figure of speech. You don't see, or you didn't see in the days of the original church in uh, Jerusalem, a lot of one-handed people or one-eyed people, because Jesus was using this as an illustration to drive a point home. He was using it to illustrate mental discipline. If you have a tendency through the lust of the eye to do something, then put a patch on it or, or divert your efforts or your thoughts away from that thing that is offensive. Discipline. 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 What produces discipline if it's toward God's service? It's attitude. If you've got the right attitude toward God, you will learn to discipline yourself. And when you've acquired that capacity, it makes it easier. But it never leaves you. You remember in the trial of Jesus when he was taken and tempted? And it says that the devil departed from him for a season he had a respite for a period but it was only for a short period even he had to discipline himself that his service to God would be acceptable and if we are to follow his footsteps could we expect to do any less there's another thing that I think we ought to look at here uh, 
in this next area regarding divorce I told you I wasn't going to comment on it excepting to say here that it related to family I, I think that this is something that we could think about and in the advice that is given here there's nothing more disruptive than what is produced by a divorce and the effects are like a pebble being dropped in a sea a calm the ripples go on and on and on and on and on and on and on now it, it seems right and proper that Jesus would advise that family matters are of utmost importance and therefore the care that should be given that might prevent this that he has spoken about is probably the first priority now I hope you will pardon me for that indulgence not forswear thyself but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths but I say unto you swear not at all neither by heaven for it is God's throne nor by the earth for it is his footstool neither by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king neither swear thou by thy head because thou canst not make one hair white or black let your communication therefore be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. Again, the Jewish backdrop of this. In the East, one writer suggests that it was business was conducted in the haggle system, if that's the way I should put it. Uh, you haggled with the seller if you were a buyer and you tried to get him to reduce the price and uh, the seller would say well you're getting too big a bargain and I swear by the beard of Allah that this thing is so good that you should be willing to pay me more than what I'm asking. And so they go back and forth, farther and and in this type of business, they were forever swearing how good the particular thing was. This was a, a manner of doing business, and and the people that heard them were aware of this, and they knew that virtually every one of the merchants that were swearing how great his material was, or the article that was for sale, it might be a mule or a donkey, you know, it was probably sway back and buck teeth or whatever but uh, he said this is the finest animal that ever lived and they swore by the temple of Jerusalem well Jesus said look that, that's not right and I don't want my followers to be that kind of people it's suggested that as soon as a man has to swear how good something is that's a hint that it's no good so what's implied in that if you have to take an oath to ascertain that, or to assure someone else that what you are about to say is valid and just and equitable and above reproach if you have to swear to that then it's suspect that is why Jesus said when you say something don't say it unless you mean it and don't say anything that you're not prepared to follow through with don't forswear yourself 
and then realize you know I took on more than I should have or I said something I shouldn't have or I attested to something that maybe had an area where it could be interpreted elsewhere it had a, a flavor of right but a substance that denied the fact when we make a statement let it be truthful and let it be known that our reputation is such that we speak the truth now can I digress a minute I'm known as a kidder and because of that I feel almost hypocritical not almost I do in saying the things that I have here today because I kid people with innuendos and therefore in fact I'm breaking this command or this law when I kid people I tell them I don't kid anybody I don't like I have an affinity for them and I think because of my disposition they understand where I'm coming I, I'm not putting uh, as it were a positive statement on some area that I'm needling them now if I'm guilty I make a confession in front of all of you if my kidding is in the category of telling an untruth then I'm guilty and not very often you get the opportunity to make a public confession but that is an area that bothers me sometimes in my kidding uh, maybe I'm wrong maybe I'll have to change it's serious to think about as is all the things or as are all the things that Jesus has spoken there's something in it that all of us can wear where we might improve so the next time you're called upon to take an oath or something like that you can really cause a stir if you refuse to let me cite you an example one time I had to appear in court and in Canada you know they're straight laced and so on and uh, the judge is sitting in his pulpit or whatever they sit in and the audience is out there and there's witnesses and lawyers running around scurrying there's the sheriff and all his retinue so the case came up they called me up I stood up there and the sheriff came up to me and he says uh, do you swear to tell the truth the whole truth so help you God I said no sheriff looked at the judge he says what do we do now <laughs> he said to me well why did you say that well, I said well I said it because I believe I'm under an instruction from the Lord that whenever I make a statement it will be truth I don't have to verify it by an oath well he says that's that's good he says he says I wish other people were as uh, how reliable and trustworthy as you evidently are well uh, I didn't know that I merited the compliment but at least he was recognizing the fact that if one 
felt that they were to tell the truth it was effective and it didn't need to be asserted affirmed confirmed by an oath so in day-to-day life some of these tools that Jesus has given us are for our good and people not that we're worrying about the respect of others but people will respect you for the principles and standards that you're trying to live by in relation to his commands. Pardon the digression. Jesus goes on and he says that the law has said that if you knock another guy's eye out then uh, you'd better be prepared to forfeit your own or if you knock a tooth out give one of your own. Then he says I say unto you that you resist not evil for whosoever smiteth thee on the right cheek turn to him the other also. Is that easy to do? Let's get a little bit of a picture here if we can. He's saying that under the law the law said that anybody that was injured had a right to come to you to be redressed for the injury that you had caused be it an eye or a tooth or a lamb pig wouldn't be a pig would it not under the Jewish system a donkey or whatever the principle then is established that this is for redress so he says don't resist evil if a man come to you and he knocks you in the cheek you're to say well here's the other one does it suggest that you warranted it or is this some guy that walks up and arbitrarily gives you a clout in the face I'm suggesting to you that you probably deserved it the original one the principle is borne out a little bit later that if a man sued you and take your coat you give your coat or your shirt or whatever it is also implying a principle in the law that you're to redress more than what you uh, injured or were responsible for I suggest to you here that Jesus is saying that if anybody hits you in the face you probably deserved it and in deserving it you better be prepared to take another club you may not agree with that but it's something to think about do you ever do anything that's worthy of a clout in the cheek? Now I, I know that in this day and age when you put away your guns and all that in the U.S. you're, you're not as apt to get out and fight like they used to do and therefore the hitting of people isn't as prevalent. But it used to be that if uh, something happened the guy would haul off and let you have it. Bang! You, you got up out of the dust and shook yourself off and said well let's go to it Jesus is certainly suggesting a passive attitude he's certainly suggesting that in my mind that if you're guilty and I'm suggesting that that maybe you are 
be prepared to take your medicine. If your attitude is right, does it really matter whether the guy hit you once or twice? If you've been wrong? And if you're wrong, I think the principle all the way through the scriptures on repentance is acknowledge your problem. And it's only when you become aware of your problem that it can be rectified. Now maybe you're saying I'm reading things in here that I shouldn't. And uh, if you feel that way, fine. But it's certainly something to think about. People don't, as a rule, go around and punch somebody else in the chops. Unless there's a reason. And if a man smites you on the cheek, you probably gave him reason. And if he wants to clout you again, take it. If a man has ought against you, and he comes to you, and he's going to, in effect, figuratively hit you in the face with what you've done, take it, because you probably deserve it. And if he wants to add another punch to you while he's there, give you a low shot, take it too. Why? Who are you serving? Who are you hoping to serve? Self? Or have you really made peace with God? Have you really developed this poor spirit? Have you really developed the attitude of meekness? And do you really thirst after righteousness and hunger after it? Or are you concerned about your own self-worth? We're human. Now as we go on, he talks about, again, situations that were prevalent. Uh, We did discuss verse 40 in, in an oblique way. I think the principle is there. Obviously, if a man sues your coat and the judge says, look, sues you for your coat, and the judge says, give him your coat, he figures you're wrong. And you're guilty, or the charge against you is just. Therefore, to show that you really feel badly, about what you have been accused of and are judged guilty of, give them additional of your possessions. Again, there are deeper meanings to some of these. We are only trying to deal deal with it on maybe a surface indication, but with the idea of relating it to our day-to-day living. The man compels you to go with him a mile. Well, you know what that was about. The army that was stationed there in Jerusalem, or the city of, I'll get a chat, Palestine, the Roman army, occupation, had the right to, if they were moving down the road and they were carrying a bunch of uh, bedding or tents or whatever it might be, they could compel or conscript one of the local residents to help them carry the load. And they made a, a, a regulation on it that you, they could only make you carry it a mile or a, a given distance. Jesus says, well, if you're compelled to do something, 
show that you're different and carry it twice the required thing. I wonder if under the system we live today, if we had that same rule, how many of us would be trotting down the road the extra mile? Do we have a, an application for that today? I wonder if our employee, our employer-employee relationship might have a general observation in this area. You know, we're, we're compelled to work, most of us to, uh, or have, to earn our daily food. Our employer requires that, or used to, that we go in at 8 o'clock and quit at 4.30 or 5, knock off for lunch. But supposing he said to you, I want you to work for 5.30. Oh, you know, i got to get home. The wife's waiting for supper. If I keep her waiting, boy, am I in trouble. Uh, you know, there's no way I'm going to change. We made an agreement. And I'm not about to change. I suggest in here that there is a subtlety that when we are obligated to do something, we ought not to be fearful of doing a little more. The most valued employee is the one that sees the job that has to be done and does a little extra. He doesn't expect to be reimbursed for it in most cases. He's just enthused with what he's doing. Now, implying this to our walk in Christ as uh, the demands are made of us in the service of the Lord, there are certain things that we're required to do. Now, if we do just what's required, well, that's fine. You've met your obligation. But it doesn't hurt in the service of the Lord to do a little more. Jesus doesn't waste words. When he gives an illustration, it's got to have a message for us. And if we fail to see it and apply it to our lives, we haven't read with discernment. And consequently, his efforts on our behalf could be wasted. You know, that's pretty serious to think about. And then a matter of giving. Boy, I'll tell you, if you want to hit a man fast, ask him for something. Oh, boy. You ask a man to to give you something and in most cases the reaction is no the give to him that asketh of thee and from him that would borrow of thee turn not thou away neither a beggar nor a borrower be is that the premise we work under I think it is most of us you know, when somebody comes and asks you 
for something no matter what it might be why do you have reticence in, 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 in giving something to somebody else now sure you'll give to your family and he deals with this later uh, I suggest that the people that are making the demand here are not necessarily family now when a neighbor or a stranger comes and wants to borrow something from you what is the reason for your reticence to loan it well if it's a tractor he'll file it up if it's a horse he'll probably have it throw a shoe boy then I'll have to fix it uh, if it's a lawnmower he'll probably run over a rock and I'll have to fix it or if it's money you know the, the, the guy is uh, obviously uh, derelict uh, in responsibility or wouldn't be asking me for it if I give him he's only going to waste it he's maybe going to go out and buy a bottle and tip it up for well, any a lot of things we have a great deal of reticence in giving I suggest to you that the reticence to give is not predicated upon what the other guy is going to do with the thing we have or he wants to loan it it's our attitude see we fail the times to realize that God provides us with all that's necessary and if we give a loan and things like that do you really think for a minute that God's going to let you go short really is he going to let you starve you won't have enough you really think that because if you do you don't have the right attitude now I'm not suggesting that you become frivolous in giving and loaning but I'm saying that if we have a problem it's because our attitude is wrong.